My name is Scott. I serve as the church planting resident here at Hope. It's great to be with you all if I've not met you yet. I'm going to pray for us once more, and then we're going to dive right in. So would you pray with me? Father, help us now to receive the sustenance of your word. We pray that you would feed our souls by it for the glory of your Son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes, heroes come from the most unlikely of places. Sometimes they take the most unlikely of forms. Consider sports, where the 199th pick of the 2000 NFL draft turned into the greatest football player and quarterback of all time. My son Henry's favorite player, he still thinks Tom Brady plays for the Patriots. Or who would have thought that Beethoven's celebrated Ninth Symphony would be written by a deaf man such that he had to be turned around to see the applause at its premiere because he couldn't hear it. Or consider hobbits. Those most unassuming, homely, and diminutive heroes in The Lord of the Rings. In fiction, as in reality, heroes often come from the most unlikely of places. And this morning, we're going to be considering a biblical hero of a most unlikely origin. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to Micah 5 as we continue in our series. You'll recall that Micah has spent the first three chapters denouncing the idolatry and wickedness and false teaching in Judah and Israel. From Samaria to Jerusalem, the message has been clear. Destruction is coming. Foreign armies will soon be here. Yet then, in chapter 4, as we saw last week, the Lord promises to rescue his people. Mount Zion will one day prosper again. Though things are bad now, and they're going to get worse, yet Yahweh will not abandon his people. And so with, it, with that context in mind, we come to Micah chapter 5, We'll have two main sections this morning, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. Yahweh will purify his people and raise up a ruler who will both deliver Israel and judge her enemies. So read with me, Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who's to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. 
Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and I will destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down your strongholds, and I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall no more have tellers of fortunes, and I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Amen. Well, our first point is found in verses 1 to 6, entitled, The Messiah's Advent. And what we're going to find in this first section is six attributes of Israel's coming ruler. Verse 1 begins with the word now, tipping us off that Micah is referring to the relatively near future, uh, when Jerusalem will be besieged and Israel's ruler will be ashamed as he slapped on the cheek. Now Israel is in trouble, but the Lord is not cut off guard. He will raise up a king, a ruler for Israel. So let's consider these six attributes of Israel's coming king, beginning in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler over Israel. The first thing to note about this coming king was his humble origins. That's what Micah is getting at here. In Joshua 15, we see a catalog of all the, the towns in, uh, in the area, in Judah, and Bethlehem isn't even listed in that list of 100 towns. You know, it's so small, it's so diminutive and in the sticks, so insignificant that it's not even mentioned. Nathaniel said of Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, you could equally apply that to Bethlehem. Such was its lowly status. But of course, something had come out of Bethlehem before. Bethlehem had made its mark on the world. For it was the hometown of Israel's most faithful king, King David. As ruler, he subdued Israel's enemies, fought on behalf of God's people, and worshipped Yahweh alone. He certainly had his own sins. But the Bible records him as a hero of the faith. Little old David. From little old Bethlehem. And so when Micah says in verse 2 that Bethlehem will once again produce a ruler over Israel, it's clear that this, this coming king is associated with David's house. And that's so significant because of what the Lord had promised would happen to David's house. In 2 Samuel 7, the Lord says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
And so Micah is picking up on that promise, if you will, and he's asserting that the ruler will come. Yahweh will keep his promise. The son of David will be born in Bethlehem. That's the first thing. Number two, the second thing we learn about this Messiah is that his appearing would be for me. That is for the Lord. You know, it's interesting because if you're Israel, surely you're thinking, we're in trouble, we're besieged, we need help, so surely he's coming out for us. That's true. But the Lord says, this ruler is ultimately coming forth for me, for my name, and for my glory. This accords with what we find in verse 4, where Micah says that this ruler would shepherd in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. You see, this ruler would act according to the resources of the Lord. He wouldn't depend upon himself and his own might, his own strength. He wouldn't rule for the sake of his own majesty or his own name. No, he would trust in the Lord and depend upon his power and work for the majesty of his name. This ruler, his ultimate allegiance would be to the Lord. He would come out for the Lord. Third, at the end of verse 2, we see that his coming forth, this ruler, is from of old, from ancient days. These phrases are really interesting. Uh, It can be translated in different ways, and and it can mean different things. So, for example, in Psalm 90, we read, before the mountains were ever brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Okay, so it's the same phrase as in our passage. And so in Psalm 90, it seems to be referring to the eternality of God. There are other times that these words simply mean from the long ago past. From ancient days, from of old, can be used to denote the time of Moses or David. And so we need to ask, what do these words mean in Micah 5? I think at a minimum, Micah is referring to the fact that the promises of old from 2 Samuel 7 will be coming true. These ancient promises will come to pass in this ruler. Yet there is, I think, perhaps a hint of something more about this coming ruler. The fourth quality of this ruler is the context and consequence of his birth, found in verse 3. Look there, and I'll replace the pronouns to make it a bit easier to understand. Therefore, God shall give Israel up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the ruler's brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Okay, so you know, again, it's interesting that Micah seems to be paying attention, a lot of attention, to this ruler's birth. Normally you pay attention to the ruler's rule or reign. He's referring to the baby. I think, again, it could simply be referring to the timing of this king's birth. But, again, you can't help but wonder if there might be something unique and special about the birth of this coming king. And what's so momentous about this ruler being born is what it will set in motion. 
Look at chapter 4, verse 10, because Mike has already given us an analogy from childbirth. Chapter 4, verse 10, Micah says, Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. All right, so do you get the analogy? When Israel is taken into captivity, into exile, they will be like a woman in labor. Exile is linked with the groaning of childbirth. So that here in chapter 5, verse 3, Mike returns to the analogy, okay? And so, so look again. When, when the mother gives birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Okay, so when does the groaning stop? When does the exile end? It's when the baby is born. The child's birth will be the end of the exile. The groaning will cease. His advent will mark the beginning of the homecoming of God's people as they return to God, to God's people and to God's promised land. That's what his birth will accomplish and set in motion. The fifth thing we learn about this ruler is what he does, found in verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock. Uh, Again, you you see how the the ruling, kingly language is often paired up with this shepherding language. Okay, so this was, uh, again, another clear allusion to, to King David, who was the paradigmatic shepherd king. What what was King David before he was King David? He was Shepherd David. He he wrote Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And and so, again, Micah is calling our attention to the fact that, that this king, this coming ruler, will be in the pattern of David. And the reason why the shepherding and kingly language are so often overlapping is because the job descriptions are so similar. You know, fundamentally, it's the care and oversight of a flock. Far from shepherding being a a dainty task with little Bo Peep and perhaps peaceful strolls in the Irish countryside, enjoying a, a gurgling brook and, you know, just rainbows and a nice peaceful day. No, shepherding was quite rugged. It could be quite dangerous. It involved tracking down and finding, rescuing lost sheep. It, it involved fighting off wild animal attacks who would seek to devour the weak and the stragglers. Shepherding could be dangerous. And that's why this ruler would shepherd in the strength of the Lord. As king, as ruler, his task was to protect, provide for, look out for, God's people. And he would do it in the Lord's strength. The result of this shepherding we, we see at the end of, verses, of verse 4 and beginning of verse 5. Because of his shepherding, this flock, his people, would dwell secure. And it's precisely because he is great to the ends of the earth that he shall be their peace. Right? So if, if he's great but of a really small portion of land, 
Well, well, their peace will be limited, won't it? Their peace and prosperity and security goes only as far as his rule and greatness. And so this shepherd would be great to the ends of the earth, and thus his peace would be unequaled and unassailable. Isn't that incredible? Uh, That this ruler would come from Bethlehem, of all places, little tiny Bethlehem. And yet he would come come to be a world ruler, come to provide peace to his people, Because his reign is empowered by Yahweh's strength and devoted to God's glory, this coming ruler would secure a shalom that even King David could never fully attain. Such was how God loved to use the weak and lowly and despised things of this world for his own glory. And so six and finally we see in verses five and six that this shepherd raises up other leaders. What has been Micah's chief complaint about Israel, or or one of his chief complaints? Well, it's their wicked leaders, right? From the the priests, to the prophets, to the judges. It's their wicked leaders. Israel desperately needed a leader who would point them to Yahweh and trust in him, who would model faithfulness and call God's people to the same. In this coming king, they would have that. Because even if Assyria invades, God's people would be more than prepared. Uh, You see that in verse 5. If Assyria invades, we'll have seven under shepherds ready to go, ready for battle. Seven being the number of completeness and wholeness and perfection. You know, and more than that, we'll have eight. We'll have eight princes. We'll have more than enough to dispatch God's enemies. And notice the geography as well. At home, if Assyria comes into our land, if he treads in our palaces, we'll defeat them. And abroad in the land of Assyria, at the entrance of Nimrod, we'll be victorious. Yet lest we should think that these people are sufficient in and of themselves, they're independent of their king, verse 6 clarifies the matter. No, he shall deliver us. You see that towards the end of verse 6. And so friends, who is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Micah 5? Who is this shepherd king? I hope you know him. His name is Jesus. For just as Micah prophesied and Matthew 2 records for us, the Lord Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Not only was Christ appearing from of old in the sense that he was the fulfillment of the Davidic promises of a king, oh, but he was also, he is also the eternally existent son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He is the ancient of days. And Christ appeared for me, that is, for God. From his taking on a human form and adding a human nature to his life and his death and his resurrection. It was all for the glory of God. Jesus came as God's representative, relying on God's resources for the sake of God's majestic name. And as Micah describes the birth of this ruler as the end of Israel's exile, so Jesus has ended our exile 
from God. Paul will write in Ephesians chapter 2, remember that you were previously separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the end of exile. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, they were exiled from the presence of God. And now, because of Christ, we're brought back. Paul continues, the very next line, now, now in Christ, you who were once far off and brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Do you know where Paul's quoting from? Micah chapter 5. Christ is our peace. He is the king who is not ashamed to call us brothers, having become like us in every way. And yes, he has returned us to God and to God's people. Praise God. So that now we dwell secure. Uh, We know that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has become great to the ends of the earth. And if you want proof of that, look no further than this room. You know, what are the odds that 2,000 years later, halfway across the globe, there'd be a bunch of Gentiles, and maybe some Jews, gathered together to worship this ruler from Bethlehem? Who is great if not the Lord Jesus? As he said after his resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And now as our ascended Savior, the chief shepherd, he gives good gifts to his people. One of which is faithful under-shepherds, pastors, who lead and protect his people. Who shepherd not with a literal sword, but with the sword of the Spirit. Friends, in all these ways, the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Micah chapter 5. He is Israel's long-awaited deliverer, and he has delivered us from an enemy much more perilous than de- and deadly than Assyria. He has delivered us from sin and death itself. Brothers and sisters, if you're here as a Christian, this is your king. And in light of who this king is, what will his kingdom be like? What will his people be like? We come now to our second section, found in verses 7 to 15, entitled, The Messiah's People. And verses 7 and 8 describe the somewhat paradoxical relationship that God's people will have with the nations. How will the king's people relate to those outside the covenant community? Well, first, we see in verse 7 that they will be refreshing to the nations. That's what Micah is getting at when he says, the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord. You know, in Palestine, as a farmer, you can bet that water is precious. Water is life. And so the, the dew and the rain, which don't depend on human ingenuity or skill, They come down as gifts from above, from the Lord. 
Oh, they are precious. Their refreshing influence is life-giving, crucial. Christian, how are you a refreshing and life-giving influence in your various callings? I wonder how you interact at work. Do you offer to take the night shift or do the unglamorous jobs, perhaps to serve others? Are you a blessing and a help to your neighbors? Do they know that if they need eggs or milk or help carrying a couch up the stairs, that they can call you and you're happy to help? Do you ever call them and say, hey, I have some free time? Anything I can do to serve you? Any way I can bless you? Uh, Brothers and sisters, how do you bring refreshment to your family? Surely family parties and gatherings, which, Lord willing, will be on the rise in the coming months, uh, they offer opportunities for strain and discord and disagreement. Are, Are you known as bringing dissension or for bringing peace and joy? and vitality to those around you. God's people are to be a refreshing source to the world around us. And second, paradoxically, God's people are to be dangerous. You see that there in verse 8. Micah says that the remnant of Jacob will be like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces. And there is none to deliver. Okay, so the the imagery is clearly one of dominance, the the preeminence of God's people. They subdue the nations, dispatch their enemies. In short, they are dangerous. So you might think, how, how does this apply to us as Christians? Because surely we're not supposed to advance God's kingdom by means of violence. I I think verse 8 makes sense when we remember that as Christians, our true enemies are not people. It's not unbelievers or even those persecuting us that we oppose. No, we oppose unbelief. We're against sin and Satan. And insofar as there are those who are under Satan's sway, we show them compassion. We pray for them. We we show compassion, not violence. But we vigorously fight against unbelief. So here's how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What are those strongholds? We destroy... Is he going to say people? What's he going to say? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Hope Fellowship Church, we are to be dangerous to the sin in our own lives. Showing it no mercy 
and tearing it in pieces. We're to be dangerous to the sin and the lives of others. Never coddling it, always sympathizing with the sinner, always calling them to a greater holiness and love. So Christian, are you dangerous? Is your way of life so provocative that unbelief hardly stands a chance, as it were, against you? Are you so prayerful that when you meet a non-Christian, their unbelief is in a precarious place because you are regularly interceding to God on their behalf, lifting them up? Are you so determined, Christian, not to grumble and complain that it cuts down your co-worker's belief in the irrelevance of heaven and future glory? Do you sing of God's goodness so heartily and joyfully that doubt over God's provision dissipates? Are you so bold in evangelism that Satan would would tremble as you meet unbelievers on the tee or in your lab? Is your speech so gracious and honest that you destroy the stereotype of Christians as backbiting and hypocritical. Christian, are you so loving and sacrificial that your very life refutes the notion that Christians are bigots? Brothers and sisters, we are to be dangerous to Satan and his kingdom. And then verse 9 shows just how intertwined God's people's victory and strength and might, how it's intertwined with the success of their leader. I I think verse 9 is best translated as a prayer from Israel to God on behalf of their leader. So some of your translations will have this. It would read, May your hand be lifted up over your adversaries, and may all your enemies be cut off. Israel recognized that as their king went, so they went. If he had success, so would they. As the Lord cut off his enemies and exalted his hand, so too Israel would prosper. And yet when we come to the final few verses of our passage, we encounter a surprising wrinkle in the plot. Notice how verse 9 ends with Israel asking that the king's enemies be cut off. They want Assyria and foreign armies to face God's fire. Yet something quite different happens in verses 10 to 14. The Lord turns his gaze, his purifying fire, toward them. Look at at verse 10. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your houses from among you and will destroy your chariots and I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds and I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes and I will cut off your carved images. You notice this the same word, cut off. They had just prayed that the Lord would cut off the king's enemies and yet here the Lord is cutting off their chariots, their cities, 
What's happening here? Israel had anticipated Yahweh cutting off their physical enemies, yet here he seems to be disciplining them. I think the same thing is happening here in verses 10 to 14, what we saw in verse 8. It's just what we considered earlier. Who is Israel's true enemy? Who is Israel's most treacherous and cruel adversary? Friends, it is not Assyria. It is not Babylon. It is their own sin. It is their own wicked hearts. Their sin and idolatry which led them away from the Lord which exiled themselves from his presence. That is what needed to be dealt with far more than any invading army. For it was precisely their rebellious hearts that had provoked the Lord's anger. You know, know, if the Lord had come and rescued Israel from the oppressor and, and kicked out the Assyrians, but failed to purify his people, it would only be a band-aid on a gaping wound. It would be a short-term fix, but Israel would be doomed to the same fate. It would be a temporary fix as they fell into sin and idolatry again. Just as Israel is helpless in defeating their external enemies, so they are helpless in defeating their internal enemies. They need the Lord just as much in saving them from the Assyrian as saving them from their own hearts. And so the Lord will save them by lovingly but ruthlessly cutting off their false crutches, their false supports. You see that. In verse 10, he eliminates their offensive military weapons. In verse 11, he cuts off their defensive fortifications. In verses 12 to 14, he cuts off their religious idols. All these things that Israel was tempted to to turn to and look for help in, in their time of need. They turned to those things instead of to the Lord. And so, the Lord cuts them off. The verbs are really strong. It comes across in English and in the Hebrew. It is incredible, the ferociousness with which the Lord goes against these, these idols, these false supports. And so if you think this strategy is perhaps a bit too harsh, I would humbly put forward my own life as an example to the contrary. After growing up in the church and heading to college, I had, had one, li- one foot in Christianity and another in the world. Part of me wanted to follow Christ, but part of me was so seduced by the temptations of this world. I had so many crutches that I would turn to instead of to God. Who needs the Lord when you can live for the approval of others? Who needs the Lord when you have horses and chariots and strongholds? And so in God's gracious providence, 
Uh, surgery to remove my tonsils was botched, and it left me unable to talk or eat or see my friends or work or leave the house for over a month. What was God doing? He was making it so that I could no longer attend to the idols in my life. He was lovingly but ruthlessly crushing all of the crutches that I leaned on instead of leaning on him. Like a surgeon, he was cutting out the cancerous mass that would have killed me. In love, he cut down and cut off all of my other vain confidences so that I would have nowhere to turn but to him. That's what the Lord is doing with Israel. Though Israel wanted God's severity against their enemies, the foreign nations, God would deal severely with their sins, but it was for their good. It was for their blessing. And so verse 15 concludes our passage. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. You know, this is the fate that awaited Israel if they were handed over to their sin. If God didn't do anything, Israel looks exactly like the other nations, right? The other nations are worshiping false gods. Israel's running right along in the same, same train. Friends, God means business. When he raises up his king, he will judge the impenitent. He will surely cut off sin wherever he finds it. And yet, the great news of Christianity, the, the news that we've gathered here to celebrate, is that this coming ruler of Israel, this shepherd, well, he is a good king and a gracious king and a merciful king. What makes this king so unique what makes the Lord Jesus so great and gracious and glorious is that he pays our debt of sin. Matthew 1 says, His name shall be Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. How does he do that? He takes our punishment. He suffers in our place on the cross so that we might go free. To, to use the language of verses 10 and 15, what happened on the cross? Jesus was cut off, destroyed, thrown down, rooted out, and upon him did God's anger and wrath and vengeance fall. Friends, he had no sin of his own. You know that, right? He wasn't dying for his own sins. He was dying for the sins of his people paying their penalty so they could go free and know forgiveness and life. So that we, his brothers and sisters, can return. So that we can be reconciled to God, return to the people of God, if, if you will but put your faith in Christ and trust in him. Follow him as the resurrected Lord, as your good shepherd. And so, friends, as a means of response, if you're here and you're not a Christian, won't you turn and trust in Christ? Do you seek 
security and peace, find refuge in Him. And if you're here as a Christian, long for the day when Christ will return to complete what He began. When He ushers in His kingdom in its fullness. You know, these promises have begun to come true now. Oh, but we will know them in their fullest and final state when He returns. In the meantime... Just as Israel would have prayed for the advent of their king, so too we say, come soon, Lord Jesus. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are undeserving of your grace. Father, we confess that we are like Israel prone to wander. Our hearts are wicked as theirs. And so we pray that you would root out the sin in our lives, that you would purify us, that you would make us holy so that we might be happy in you. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for his work on our behalf. We thank you that he is not ashamed to call us brothers. We pray that you would show, it, show us great grace. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.